Uh, all right, what time do I speak till? 8.55. Okay, uh, I'm Lori B. I'm an alcoholic by the grace of God. I've been clean and sober since January 6th of 1987. And for that, I'm truly grateful. Disclaimer, my dog might bark. It's a thing. Um, if he does, I'll just stop talking for a minute. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happened, what it was like, and what it's like now. And in that, I hope to transmit God because God is truly the reason I'm here. Yeah, it's been a hell of a weekend. <laughs> the kind of weekend where I probably would have said, I'm not speaking today, but you know what? Just the opposite. I better speak today. Um, we had to bury someone today, and then my Tesla got a hit and run like two hours ago which I never take it out of the garage because I'm paranoid someone's going to hit it and someone did. So there you go, pulling it into my universe. But I have to flip that, promises. Uh, we're lucky that we have people in our lives in cars. So part of sobriety. Um, anyway, I grew up in New York um, in an alcoholic family. My dad was a crazy, angry alcoholic. My mom took a lot of pills to shut out my dad. And I have two sisters, one older than me and one younger than me. And my dad was physically abusive on me and sexually abusive on my older sister. And my little sister learned to hide out at, at a young age because she didn't want any part of that. And um, I failed to bond to humans as a child because of what was happening in my house. There was a lot of craziness and nobody was talking about it. As a matter of fact, the more they didn't talk about it, the more I would act up and the more I acted up, they took me to see psychiatrists and psychologists, got me on meds and I was suicidal. I since I got sober, a therapist once asked me, like, when did you become suicidal? I didn't become suicidal. I was, I came in the gate like that. I didn't want to be here. There was no part of what was my life that I wanted, except for my pug. I had a pug that, um, and that was the only thing that grounded me to life. And because of my dad's violence, I was violent at a young age. The first act of violence that I clearly remember was in nursery school. There was this kid in my class that looked stupid and at the age of four or five, I was thinking she looks so stupid. She needs to be hurt. So I told her to lay down next to a flight of stairs. And then I pushed her down the stairs and I did not feel guilty. I felt glad that she was hyperventilating so loud that she couldn't tell the teacher where I was. Um, and things just went downhill from there. I was, um, I was angry all the time. I like, I like things that give me a jolt. I like scary movies. I still fall asleep to forensic files. It's very gentle and puts me to sleep like a baby. Don't know what that's about, but I used to watch Creature Feature and um, The House That Dripped Blood and my sisters would yell. Lori's watching the bad movies again, but I loved it. We had this little bridge around, um, I grew up in Long Island, New York, so it was out by the ocean. We had this bridge that seemed like it was gonna fall down and I would get on it when the train was coming and it would start shaking. And I just, I love anything that gives me a jolt. So um, I was hitchhiking at a young age, smoking at a young age, stealing at a young age, stupid stuff from the five and dime. And my first drink, because I grew up Jewish, was Grape Concord Manischewitz wine. And I don't know when it happened. I can't track it. Um, but I know I was young because that's what we do as Jews. We drink, we eat and we drink. Um, and I, as a small child, I thought maybe I was a, a witch or something in a past life because I couldn't figure out why God was so angry at me that he put me in with this family. But that was my forever belief that I must have done something really bad, like I was a witch and he was punishing me. So um, I, my dad was an airline pilot, which should make you feel safe if you're traveling because he was drinking all the time. 
And as a kid, I thought, what's he going to hit like a cloud? Because I didn't really realize there's other planes up there and things that they could be hit. Um, now I do shouldn't be drinking. And I think they check on that now. But um, as a kid, I had all kinds of excuses for my dad. I thought the reason why he drives fast and crazy is because he's used to doing 500 in the airplane. And then he gets down, gets into his car and he just goes fast. Um, my mom took a lot of medicine to, to block out my dad and she didn't work. He controlled all the money. But around the age of 13, like right after my bat mitzvah, they say that for a reason, which I'll come back to. Um, my mom left us in New York with my dad and went to California to get a place for us to live, get a job, get some money so she could pull us out of this bad situation. Now, when my mom left, I didn't know if she was coming back, but frankly, I was just glad somebody got out. Like it was like a bad movie, a scary movie. Like someone made it out alive. So I was glad for her. And, um, when she left, things really started to escalate because I look a lot like my mom, my mom, my dad was really, um, angry, more angry than usual. And my mom and dad's closet, which had like a lot of their clothes in it, of course, it was like a walk-in closet filled with cases and cases of Smirnoffs. And that's when I really started to realize my dad has a bad drinking problem. My dad always carried a gun, like a cop gun. I never thought as a child, why does a pilot need a cop gun? But since he always had the gun, I just assumed it's a thing. I never really thought about it because it was always there. But my dad was violent. He threatened us a lot and he had that gun and we were all scared of him. So, um, well, after my mom left, he had a really hard time handling all the babysitting stuff when he would go on trips. So sometimes he'd leave a young babysitter with us. Sometimes he'd leave a stewardess with us. And sometimes he'd just leave us alone. And I think in the 70s, there were like latchkey kids all over the place. It wasn't, I don't even think it was child abuse. That's why we had the term latchkey. It was like, you let yourself in with your key for those that are younger. Um, but so he goes on a trip one day and um he doesn't leave anyone with us. So I have my friend Jeanette spend the night. And I think in the morning, we're going to, I figure he's going to be gone for three days. He has to get somewhere, spend the day, fly back. So that's two to three days. So she's going to spend the night. We're going to hitchhike to McDonald's in the morning, hang out with our friends, eat French fries, smoke, maybe get in a fight because it's New York. That's what we do. And um, that's the plan, right? That's our forever plan. So she spends the night and in the morning, we start getting ready to go. And we got out of the shower and our hair was wet. And we couldn't find the blow dryers. And we're like looking all through the house for the blow dryers. Blow dryers supposed to be under the bathroom cabinet where they normally are. My sisters are gone. My dad's gone. I assume someone took them, but we're looking all over the place. And all of a sudden the garage door opens. And at the age of 13, I'm like a skilled war veteran in regards to where my dad is in the house at all times because of being beat by him. I could tell by the pace of his footsteps if he's angry at me. And still today at work, I can tell who's coming to my office by the pace of their footsteps. It's a very strange thing that I didn't, didn't seek to do, it just happened because of what was happening with me. So I hear my dad come in the house, come up the stairs, go down the hallway, set his pilot cap down because he would take his change out of his pockets, put it in his pilot cap and I would hear it hit the bench in his room. And then it got really quiet in the house. So I'm in the bathroom with the door almost closed and Jeanette's hiding in my bedroom because I'm not supposed to have a friend spend the night when he busts through the bathroom door and he has a blow dryer in his hand and he starts beating me and I'm stuck. I get myself in between like the toilet and the wall for cover so that he's hitting me with the blow dryer. God only knows why he hit the blow dryer, why he had it. It's a whole nother thing I'll never figure out. And um, he's missing me and now plaster is flying out of the wall and it's making a lot of noise. So Jeanette comes running in from the bedroom, stops at the bathroom door, makes a noise and he sees her and she sees him and it's like an equally resident shock for two completely different reasons. She's like, Holy crap, Lori's getting beat up because I never told anyone how crazy my family was. And, she, and he's like, 
holy shit, someone sees what I'm really like. Cause my dad was pretty well respected in the community. So she went in the kitchen and called her mom and said, we need help. You need to come get us. And he went in his bedroom and closed the door, probably freaking out. And her mom came and got us and took us back to her house and told us she, her mom and dad were telling me, you know, it's not okay what your dad does to you. Frankly, I'm just completely embarrassed that these people know how crazy my family is. Cause I already feel like I don't fit in and I don't need all this, you know? So I'm not saying anything. And then my dad called up over to their house and he's like, I don't know what you know about Lori, but Lori's seeing a psychiatrist right now. She's on meds for schizophrenia. She's suicidal. She steals. She's been kicked out of school. She fights a lot. She definitely lies. She has blackouts. Everything he's saying is absolutely 100% true, but has nothing to do with what just happened at the house. But they, I think the parents thought this is way too much for us to get involved in. Um, your dad's coming to get you. I'm sure it'll work out because now he knows that we know. So we're sure he won't hate you again. So my dad comes and gets me over there, drives me back to the house and doesn't say anything to me on the drive home. But when we get to the house, he opens the front door kind of politely for me, which my dad's never polite. And I thought, okay, well, maybe someone scared him. But what really happened was he was holding the door open so that when I walked through, his other hand would get in the, in the spine and he could hit me. And he hit me so hard this day that I knew I was going to be it was going to be bad. So I think I got enough. I always want to say some good word here, but all I could think is balls. So I think I got enough balls to get out. And I ran out the table uh, around the table and into the woods. We our estate where we lived was in the woods. And I hid until my dad stopped looking for me. And I saw him go back in the house. And then I hitchhiked over my friend Aaron's house. And Aaron was like a latchkey kid. She was, oh, I never met her mom. I know she had one because someone was paying the mortgage, but um, she had a hippie brother and it was Aaron home all the, all the time alone. So I went over there and I thought I could crash over there. So I got there and I called home and my dad answered the phone. And I said, I'm at Aaron's and I'm not coming home. Click, like I banged the phone down. And you think like, why did you just tell him where you were after all that? But I was only 13. That's what I did, you know? But for me that day, I remember thinking it's like a statement, like you cannot stop me. I am not coming home. Like, boom. Like I had some kind of power, which I don't have, um, obviously at 13. So I'm at Aaron's and in the middle of the night, that night, the phone rings and it's an aunt of mine. She said, the police are at the house. We know you have your dad's gun and we're coming to get you right now because police want to talk to you. Now I didn't have my dad's gun. I know the gun they were talking about, but I didn't have it. But my dad would make crazy stories when he got drunk and I couldn't believe they're calling in the middle of the night. So my aunt takes me back to the house and my dad's sitting at the table with a bunch of police officers and they're asking me about that gun. And I see my dad's giving me a look like, God forbid you say anything to these guys while they're here. You and I are going to be alone after they leave because he's got this look about him that's just like a stare. So I'm not saying anything about my dad. I'm just saying I don't know where the gun is. They get tired of questioning me. They send me to bed. And then my aunt comes into the room after the police leave. And she says, I just saw your dad and sister sneak the gun out of the oven. And I know they were trying to set you up. But if you tell him your dad, where are you guys going to go? Like an orphanage? And I really love my little sister um, who's now in the program. Some of you guys know her. Allison, but um, so I thought about it and I said that I won't tell him my dad because truthfully I wanted my dad to love me and I knew if he told I told on him he'd never love me. So I said I won't tell on him. She left my room. I finally fell asleep after being back in this crazy house. And the next morning I'm woken up by a different police officer. And this day would change my life forever. So this police officer came to my bedroom door and said, get up, get dressed. I'll wait out in the hallway. I got dressed. He walked me down to a car, put me in the back seat, and we started to drive. And I didn't know if it was like a rescue from Jeanette's parents or what, but in the seventies, little people didn't talk to big people like they do now. 
for those of you that are young, we had like this generation gap thing that we didn't, we, we had a wall between us at some level. So I didn't ask the police officer where we're going and I was scared to death. But when we pulled off the freeway and I saw the dark gates of Central Islip Mental Institution for the criminally insane, and we started to go down the path and see the big buildings with the bars on the windows, I realized like, oh my God, Laura, you should have told someone. Like you should have told someone yesterday what was going on because to tell someone today after not saying anything, it's just not gonna, they're not gonna believe you. So I go into this crazy house and it wasn't a kid's place. It was an adult place. Um, Pilgrim State, Kings Park and Central Isop is what they wrote. One flew over the cuckoo's nest after and they had stopped doing lobotomies but they were still doing shock treatments and they tied me to a bed in a straitjacket and they drugged me and they kept me in that room with barely any clothes on tied to the bed, sorry, in the straitjacket. And um, that was not animal abuse. That was really nice and dropped her gently. Okay, um, heard that yesterday on a call. So um, for me, it was the opposite of a spiritual awakening. It was like the spiritual deadening that would rule my life for the next 10 years because I thought now it's clear that God hates me because now he's like sentenced the witch to hell and I'm, I'm tied to this bed in this place. And they think that I was trying to kill my dad. My mom kept on calling back to the house to see what I was doing. My dad and sister kept on saying, she's outside playing, you missed her again. And finally she hired someone who found out a kid was admitted to this place and she found out it was me and she got me out. But she didn't have enough money to get me out here to California. She was like working a commission job and living in a small apartment. So I went to a group home in Stony Brook, New York and that was where I met kids like me for the first time in my life. Other little kids that had been abandoned and abused. And they were like, I bonded to these kids immediately. They were like my little heroes. They were like you guys, except for they were teeny tiny and they weren't sober yet. So, um, but I had a family and I loved it there and I didn't want to leave. And then my mom got enough money to get us out here. And I didn't want to come and move in with my mom and sisters, but I had to. And I moved to Newport Beach and um, she enrolled me in Newport Harbor High School. Now you have to understand at this point, I'm dressing like a boy, acting like a boy. If you saw a picture of me that day, think I was a boy and Newport Harbor High School has a lot of girls that are dressed pretty and dress up and they don't have a fight pit there I mean I just like I was completely out of my zone right so I went to school but I didn't go to class because I didn't fit in I went to the smoke pit where I saw other kids like me and we hung out in the smoke pit every day and one one day one of the girls wanted to break into her old boyfriend's house and get her shiz back because she had left it there so we did that and then we realized everyone's gone during the day they're all at work or school and instead of being bored at the smoke pit we could go into people's houses and take cigarettes alcohol and money and we could drink and smoke and celebrate that we burglarized another house by ordering dominoes so that was our gig that was my criminal career um, and then at some point, one of the kids was like, let's take jewelry, because if we're going to go in the house, we should at least take jewelry. So we had a lot of jewelry, no drug habit, no idea what to do with the jewelry. And my mom went into my sock drawer to do my laundry and found a bunch of jewelry and took it into the jewelry store to get appraised and almost got arrested. So I came home from school and I was arrested for $90,000 worth of burglaries. And the rest of my teenage years were group homes and juvenile hall mostly juvenile hall because I wasn't easy to place um, because I was AWOL, suicide risk and all this stuff. And I would run from every place they put me at, no doubt. Um, sometimes I was only there a couple of hours because I didn't want to be in one of those. I didn't want to be in a, yeah. So um, most of my time was in juvenile hall. I mastered juvenile hall. I got, was like on a roll in juvenile hall. I mopped the floors so I could stay out after silverware count. And you guys probably don't know what I'm talking about, but 
I was, uh, I tried to be the best I could in juvenile hall so I could stay out late, eat popcorn and stupid stuff like that. And I thought um, I would never stay anywhere, but a bunch of us were transferred together to a new group home in Costa Mesa. And I stayed because I knew the girls there. And when I stayed there, they put me in continuation school. And I love continuation school because the whole school's like a smoke pit. Everybody's cool. So I start going to continuation school and I'm sitting there one day when this old jalopy pulls into the parking lot, Janice Joplin blasting out the windows and these bikers get out and they let this beautiful girl out and then the bikers get back in and they split and they pick her up after school. And I thought, God, I need to know this girl. She like held herself higher than the other kids didn't talk to them. So the next day I went down to the beach and I got cocaine. Now I got cocaine from a guy that had a crush on me that dealt cocaine, but I didn't like cocaine because it makes me talk too much. And I already talked too much. As you can see, I didn't need cocaine. Right. So but I thought she might like cocaine because it's expensive and you can't get it at a continuation school. So I got some cocaine and I brought it in and I asked her if she wants to do some. And she said, yes, meet me in the bathroom and bring a cup of water and a cigarette, but don't light your cigarette. So I get in the bathroom, she pulls me in the stall and she pulls out a needle and she said, you want to shoot up? And I was like, yeah, fine. If it kills me, I'm trying to kill myself unsuccessfully for many years in my head, I'm saying this. So of course I'm going to shoot up. So we started shooting up Coke and cannabinol on a regular basis. And um, we are like best friends from that point on. Her whole family is white supremacist and my whole family is Jews, but we had drugs. So we let that slip away. Um, then I knew what to do with the jewelry. Then I started getting really weird. Um, I started doing not only cocaine, but anything I could get my hands on, but a lot of cocaine. And I started to get paranoid and I was so tore up. I knew that I was going to die if I didn't straighten up. So I thought when I get back, when I get off of probation at 18 and they stop following me, I'm going to go back to New York where people just use social acid and mescaline and I'm going to clean up my life. So that was my plan. And um, I know people shoot up in New York, but as a kid, I didn't know them. So I went back to New York and I drank a lot of Jack Daniels and I played a lot of pool. Didn't know anyone that shot up. And um uh, I started seeing some guy and I have this failure to bond ever since I was really little. I don't bond with people well, and I don't think like someone's always going to be there, but he was a nice guy and I liked him. And one day I looked down and I usually weighed about 90 pounds, but on this day, there was a bump on my stomach. When, when I realized there was a bump on my stomach, I realized I was pregnant. I'm like, oh my God, like I could have my own family. I could have my own baby and I could start all over again. And I could love my baby. And I started thinking about how crazy my family was. And I thought, I want to have a family. I want to have my own baby. But if I tell this guy I'm pregnant, he's going to find out I'm a junkie and take away my baby. I've seen stuff like that happen. So I didn't tell him. I came back to California pregnant. My mom wouldn't let me stay with her. She's like, you're a hot mess. You can't take care of yourself, let alone a baby. So I moved in with some lady and took care of her five kids like a nanny while she went to work. And I was doing pretty good. I was like six months pregnant. I was going to my Lamaze classes. Um, I was drinking beer, you know, but I thought that's sober and it's got wheat in it or something. I don't know. Thought of an 18 year old. Um, and I was doing pretty good. And then one of my friends from the beach in Newport Beach found out where I was staying and stopped by and dropped a needle and a bindle on the table. And without the program, I lose the ability to make a choice. So I couldn't get that stuff in my arm quick enough. My stomach went hard. My baby wasn't moving. I thought I killed my baby. I started crying, calling the hospital. Um, and all of a sudden the baby started moving again. And I remember there was this old lady 
down at the beach. Um, she was like 30 at the time, but I was young enough to think that was old. And um, she told me the baby's in a different part of your body. She was using drugs while pregnant. I believed her and continued to shoot up through my whole pregnancy. Gave birth to my daughter at Fountain Valley Hospital. They didn't check me. And they sent me home with her. The lady kicked me out because she knew I was a junkie now. And I'm living in hotels on Harbor Boulevard and wherever, you know, I'm living in hotels and um, shooting up so much cocaine. I don't have money for baby food or anything in the morning. My older sister and my little sister are both drug addicts at this point. My little sister's like a punk rocker that dyes her hair all the time and does any kind of drugs. And my older sister was a DJ at a place called Deja Vu. Her name was Rockin' Robin. She'd like be in the middle of like the DJ and she hung out with a lot of rich guys. And um, we were all complete opposites. And one day, um, uh, let, me say, let me start by saying, I hung out with the guys that got, spent time in prison. And when they weren't in prison, they would come and see me at the motel and hang out with me. And they did heroin. I didn't like heroin. It made me throw up and act too nice, you know? But um, I had tried it, I didn't like it. But at some point I thought, you know what? It might be good to do heroin to get off Coke. Cause if I could throw up and go to sleep after I throw up, then I could still have money in the morning for baby food and stuff. So I did, de I did, I got on heroin as a detox savings plan, get off Coke, save some money. Um, I had a lot of good plans. So my older sister called me one day and she said, Lori, um, and we never got along since she hit the gun on me and I knew it, but I never told her that I knew it but we didn't get along that well. She said, Lori, um, I had a job I was supposed to do tonight with a bunch of rich guys and I can't do it, but I told them about you and they said they'd take my little sister. If you wanna make some money, these are really nice guys. They'll treat you really well and they'll pay you well. Do you wanna make some money? And I, Scott Redman used to say, for those of you that know him, I always miss the middle. Like I heard the beginning and the end, like the go somewhere, get some money. <laughs> to not miss that whole middle part. Um, anyway, she sent me a cab and at, to the motel and it took me to the San Clemente Inn. And when I got there, I met with the owner of the restaurant and he told me, I'm gonna grab some lobster and some steak for you. And I have opium back at the house and I have keys for you to a Mercedes that's out in the parking lot. If you get in the car, the directions to the golf course are there. You go to the golf course, meet these three doctors I got to introduce you to. They're friends of mine, they're really nice. And then get back in the Mercedes, follow the directions to my house and we'll smoke some opium and eat and I'll send you home. So I go to this golf course thing into this little room and these three doctors come in and they talk to me about prostitution and AIDS. I guess they thought I was a prostitute and um, none of them wanted to be with me. They, this is like the, when the AIDS epidemic started in the eighties. Um, they thought I was a prostitute. Some, I didn't say anything. I was just like really nervous. And then they left a bunch of money and they walked out and I looked at the money after I got up and it was like $800. Now I'm not a prostitute, but seriously, I was getting um, $800 is like two months worth of welfare checks for $800. I would have done something, no doubt. Right. So um, I went back, smoked some opium and go back to my motel. And the next day I opened the drawer in the motel and it's like a crossroads for me. There's a, if you ever think about the motel room drawer, there's like a Bible and yellow pages. So it's like, are you going to pray about it? Even though you're Jew, like you're going to pray about it. Or are you gonna go for it? So I open up the yellow pages and I'm looking for prostitution. It's not in there like that, but I found some escort thing and I called it. And again, it's the eighties. So um, when I called it, the lady said, we need to see a picture of you. I faxed her a picture from the motel lobby. She said, you look good, um, we'll take you. And it was around Christmas time, right? Very next night I get a call from the lady and she's like, we have a call for you in Laguna Niguel. I'm like, 
okay, I don't have a car. So I call my little sister at my mom's house. I'm going to get mom's car. Um, I'm going to make some money tonight and I'll split it with you. So she comes over with my mom's car, picks me up. We go to Laguna Niguel. It's Christmas time. So there's lights at every house, except for the one I'm about to walk into. So I told my little sister, I don't come out after a reasonable period of time, call someone, not mom, the police, call someone else, get me help. So I go to the door and I knock and I hear this loud whoosh sound. And then the door flies open. And it's like some crazy looking guy in a wheelchair with like crazy Albert Einstein, crazy hair, every direction. And then he's really mad and he's like, get in the house. And I go in the house and there's like no furniture. It's completely barren except for some computer parts and Vietnam War vet stuff. So immediately for my dad, I triggered, okay, he's got to have guns in this house. And he's a Vietnam War vet. He has to have guns. And um, I was only there for a couple of minutes because I didn't know what to do. Like, he's like, what do you, I'm like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, really take your clothes off. I'm like here now. And he's it, I failed prostitution. He kicked me out. It was like four minutes later. He was like, I'm done. You know what I mean? You're done. You're out. I'll pay you, but mm -mm. so um, really rigid and unsexual. So anyway, um, you know how we are after that. I was like, I, I, I can't believe I fucked that up. Like I have to fix that. So I kept on doing it. I kept on going to guys, houses and motels. And um, then I got heroin sick. And that was the beginning of the end for me because um, I couldn't wait for the call service to call anymore at night. And I walked out onto Harbor Boulevard and my mom came and took my daughter away, which was a good thing because I was on the streets all the time with my prison bound friends watching her. And although I would tell you, I trust these guys with my life, it just wasn't a good place for a little girl. And I remember in the beginning of working the streets where it felt powerful. And then I remember the end of working the streets where I, had, I was almost soulless. Like I, there was nothing left of me. And it was, it was Thanksgiving and some man pulled a knife on me. And I clearly remember this day because he pulled a big knife on me and he put it to my neck. And I said, you want to rape me? You know how many times I've been freaking raped? Rape me, go. And the guy was like, he left. He didn't want to, that was not the response he wanted. Um, but I could see by his look and the fact that he left that there was nothing there was nothing left to fight for, right? Um, people didn't want to be around me. So it was like um, January 5th, 1987. And I was at Fifth and Harbor by the donut shop where I usually work the streets when a white car pulled up and I jumped into the back seat and there was two Mexicans in the front and the guy driving looked like he was on meth. He looked crazy, like he was trying to get somewhere. They were like gang member types. And the other guy was like looking out the window. And when we jumped on the freeway, I realized how bad it was that if I lived through this, it would be, uh, it would be amazing because the guy driving was like panicking to get somewhere. The other guy looked like he wasn't in agreement so much. And he was looking out the window and I'm thinking, Lori, you could not go through another one of these times. I've been through a lot of bad stuff that I don't talk about. Um, I wrote about it in my book, but I don't like to talk about it, but I knew this was going to be another one of those days. And I jumped out of the backseat and into the front to try and grab the steering wheel to make them crash thinking if we can get in a car accident, I know the car accident's coming. I'm going to brace myself and they'll get hurt. And then I can get out of this car. So when I jumped, the guy on the right side must've been watching me and his fist hit me. And the next thing I know, I woke up in a clearing in the woods somewhere in a Canyon and they jumped out of the front seat and into the back and they had a gun and through their broken English, I got that a prostitute had killed a gang member and they were supposed to rape and kill a prostitute that night and leave her in the woods. And I'm that girl. And somewhere in the middle of the night after being raped and beaten and having that freaking gun to my head, I realized, you know what, Lori, they don't realize who they have here. 
They've got a gun. You want to die. Get them to freaking kill you. Like, make it all end. Make all the memories end about your daughter being gone, about your dad. Just make it all stop. So I started screaming, kill me, at the top of my lungs in the canyon, thinking they're going to kill me. Instead, they must have left me for dead, because the next thing I know, I'm waking up and I have gravel all stuck to my body and just a shirt on, just a torn shirt. Everything else that I had on was back in the car. And there was a big um, African-American man picking me up like a big guy, like, like the green mile, like he was picking me up like I was nothing. And I saw his car, like he had this van with like white seats and I had blood all over me. And the only thing that went through my head is I'm going to get his seats bloody and he's going to beat me up. So I started struggling with this guy and going, no, 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 please put me down. Please, please. I don't need your help. Please put me down. And he picked me up to his eyes and he had tears rolling down his face. And he said, please, would you please just let me help you? Just please let me get you to hospital. I'm not going to hurt you, little girl. I'm going to take you straight to the hospital and I'm going to leave. I'm not going to hurt you. And something about those that man's tears pierced my soul and I trusted him completely. And he took me to the hospital. He must have paid for a cab back because the hospital said, where do you want to go? And the only place I knew to go was Fifth and Harbor where I worked the street. So I went there in my hospital gown barefoot with a slit up the back. And who gives a shit at this point? I need to get high to get some more to get rid of all the memories that just happened, just to get rid of everything, like just to make it all go away. And the next day I was so broken. I called my mom and I said, mom, I need help. And she hung up on me and rightly so, because I've a lot of, done a lot of bad stuff to my mom. And then I called Tom, the guy in the wheelchair, which is why I brought him up in the first place. So Tom, the Vietnam vet guy had, um, he had left home when he was 14 because he was being abused, ran the streets until he was 18 and then joined the Marines for three hots and a cot. And he was actually leading his battalion when he got shot with shrapnel. And he spent the rest of his life alone because he never talked to his family again in that home in Laguna Niguel calling prostitutes to hang out with. But on the day he met me and I was so unskilled, he realized that I was just like him. And he'd been chasing me down on the streets on, on Harbor Boulevard, Beach Boulevard, trying to save me for years. So I called Tom and I said, Tom, I need help. And he said, Lori, I will take you wherever you want to go, but I will not give you one more dime. So I said, okay, just come and get me. I had a car with like hand controls. And he came and picked me up and took me to Casa del Serra, which was a beautiful place that saved so many lives. Um, I think at Dana Point or something, I had to go somewhere far. And that seemed far from Santa Ana to me because I never left Santa Ana, um, Garden Grove area. So I went there and um, they told me to go in my room and rest and we'd have a group later on. And I remember going in this little room and it was so beautiful and everything matched. And all I could think was, you think I deserve a rest? Do you know what kind of person I am? Do you know what kind of mom I am? Like, I don't deserve a rest. If anything, I thought I deserved more punishment. So I didn't feel worthy of sitting on the pretty little bed. So I collapsed on the floor. And for the first time in a long time, I was like in a praying like position. And I said, God, please help me. I don't know what help looks like. I don't even know what help is. But if you could just be with me now. And then my head kicked in and said, Lori, God's not listening to you anymore. You know how many times you lied to God every time you were in jail, every time you thought you'd never see your kid again. But I'm here to tell you that was January 6, 1987. And there's nothing, like nothing you can do to make God stop listening to you or loving you. And it took me a long time to get that. After I got out to Casa del Sierra, after a week there, I had needed a scholarship bed and there was none. So I went back to the Trick's house for three weeks. He let me stay in his guest bedroom. And he started to teach me computer stuff, right? So um, slowly over that week. And then I went into New Directions for Women. I was supposed to stay a month. I ended up staying there a year. For the first time in my life, I would talk about the stuff that happened to me in my childhood, the things that I never told anyone, stuff that happened to me on the streets that I never told anyone. And I just let it all out. And I was scared to death to leave. 
to the point where my daughter had to be put into foster care. And that almost made me relapse. But um, the foster mom told me she would give her back if I got a year sober. So I stayed and I got a year sober. I got commitments everywhere because I was scared to use. I was secretary of NARC in the park. I was secretary of H&I. So I'd take the minutes. I had a juvenile jail panel in um, juvenile YDC, which is like juvenile hall. So I could see my people. And um, I started the meeting at my house when I got out. There was a men's group called Dog on the Roof, not meaning to offend, but I didn't like them. They were a little bossy. So I started pussy on the porch at my house to piss off Dog on the Roof and it went into the directory. So it might've pissed them off for a minute, but then it came out of the directory. They said, it's not appropriate, but it's back in the directory as POTP. And it's like 33 years strong. But I started this pussy on the porch meeting at my house. I started lying on computer, on job applications. I said I knew computers because Tom had started to teach me, but I didn't. I got hired a lot and I got fired a lot. I couldn't find the power button on the first few jobs. That's pretty bad for a computer person. So I got fired a lot. I got hired a lot. I got my daughter back out of foster care. And um, we would have that weekly meeting every week at my house. And one week, this lady showed up and at the end of the meeting, she said, my name's Pam and I'm an addict and I'd love to get what you guys have. But I have a 12 year old back at the crack house and and a trick drove me here tonight. Like, what am I gonna do? Leave my kid at a crack house and go get sober? So I'm glad for you guys that you have a happy life. And I remember going into my room and talking to God and you guys said, I could believe in anything as God, as long as it wasn't me. And I didn't trust the real God. And Lord knows I didn't want him to peg where I was at again because he had stopped putting bad luck on me for a while. So I thought if I start praying to him, he's gonna locate me again. So I started praying to George Burns because I thought he's a good God, right? I saw him in a movie, played God. He, who's a cool dude. So I've been praying to George through almost my whole sobriety, but um, I talked to George that day and I felt like it'd be good if I helped that lady. So, because I had my daughter back, I had heat coming through the vents. I had food in the fridge. So I said, if you drop your daughter off, um, I'll tell the trick where to take you to get help. There was a place in Costa Mesa and um, I'll watch her for a month. So she dropped her 12 year old off and I told the guy where to take her and her, this kid was like my karma. I tell her to stay home. She told me to F off. She stole everything I didn't lock down, including my rent. But I love this kid. It was like raising myself, right? True karma. But I really love this kid. And like two months later, I haven't heard from her mom. So I called up over there and I'm like, is Pam there? And they're like, no, she relapsed, lady. She left here like three weeks ago. I'm like, what are you talking about? I got her kid. They're like, we don't do kids. We do recovery. You call like social services. So I call social services and they're like, you have to drop her off at Orangewood. And I'm like, I can't drop a kid off at an agency. That's what happened to me. And they said, well, you could apply to be a foster mom. I'm like, okay, I'll apply to be a foster mom. So I applied, they called me in, they opened my file. They're like prostitution. I'm like, well, I had to get my kids some food. We didn't have any food. They said, Laura, you've been arrested four times. I'm like, okay, uh, what do I got to do? They said, look, you're just barely clean and sober. But if you get seven years clean and sober, you can come back and reapply. But for right now, you need to go get that kid and bring her back. And I was so traumatized. There was no cell phones yet. This is the eighties. So I went home and called everyone on my fridge, on my pussy on the porch list. And one girl was a paralegal. And she said, if you get guardianship paper, paperwork done, they can't take her no matter what. So I called the trick. I still had my manipulation skills that dropped the mom. And I said, you drop the kid here, you drop the mom. And now she's going into foster care. If you can't give me a check for $1,500. And he said, don't ever call my cell phone again. I don't want my wife to know anything about this. I'll drop you the check. You lose my number. So I got the check. I got guardianship of the kid and everything was good for a while. And by the time she was 16, her mom, her mom died of an overdose. 
drowned in a bathtub on cocaine. By the time she was 18, she was the receptionist at the computer company I was working at. And she lived with one of my friends, one of my sober friends. And um, life was pretty good. I told my daughter at some level, I knew I would never get married. I have this failure to bond to people. So I told my daughter, let's save half my paycheck for a year and let's buy a house so we could live in a neighborhood where people own their houses, like with real families. And she agreed. We saved half my paycheck for a year. We went out looking for a house and we moved. We, we saw this brand new um, home builder in Rancho Santa Margarita where, you know, you got to go through the office to see the models, but they weren't paying any attention to me. I was young and I was dressed like I had no money. So um, we, went, we went through and looked at the house and I knew it was my dream house, but I didn't want to get my daughter's summer's hopes up because I didn't know anything about real estate, interest rates, anything like that. I'm like a juvenile hall kid, right? I had no real education. So I did not tell her, but every weekend we came back and looked at the house. And then one weekend there was like balloons outside of the new home place. And the lady said, Lori, I know you're scared, but go home and get your taxes. And I'm going to teach you how to buy a house by changing your dependence and switching things around. So it's not much more than you pay right now. So God always puts people in my path. And I think God puts every people in everyone's path. It's just, do we notice it or do we close our minds to what we don't know? So I listened to this lady. I went home, got my taxes, brought them back. She taught me how to buy a house. We brought a, we bought a brand new three bedroom house, watched it be built, move into it. It's just my daughter and I. So I decorate the third room in case she has a daughter's, um, a friend spend the night and um, everything's amazing. I keep on getting promoted at work, but not because I'm the best computer engineer, because definitely there were guys better than me, but I was so happy to be alive. And I think when you've lived in the kind of darkness we've lived in, just everything makes you grateful. Um, starting with a parking spot. I mean, anything just like makes my day. So I get promoted from customer engineer to systems engineer to senior systems engineer to owning the flipping company. And every time I got promoted, I was like scared to death. And um, things were going crazy good until my sister, my older sister calls me one day and she has my son, my, no, I'm sorry, talking so fast. She has my nephew, Danny, who's like four and she's, she hadn't dealt with our childhood issues. And she said, Lori, I've been beating Danny so bad I might kill him. And I need to bring him to your house right now. And you need to call the police or the social workers or whatever and have them taken away from me before I kill him. So I love kids. I don't like my sister so much, but I love kids. And I had her bring him over and he was all beat up. And I saw the social workers take him away. And I was so triggered that I showed up to the agency and I said, what do I got to do to get my nephew? And they said, Lori, when we tell someone come back in seven years, they don't come back. But the last time you were in our office was just over seven years ago. And my little sister always says, is it odd or is it God, Lori? It's definitely God. I'm not counting the time. They waive my record. They make me a foster mom. My older sister finds out doesn't want me to have our kids. So she goes through some anger management thing, never hits him again. And they do well forever for, you know, they, she never, she never heard him again, but it was two days before Christmas. And I don't know why so many good things happened for me around Christmas, but um, it was two days before Christmas and the phone rang and it was some lady. And she said, is this Lori Burns? And I said, yes. And she said, I've got you on the list as an Orange County foster mom. And we've got a 15 year old that ran away from Vegas. Her dad's been molesting her and her, she has no mom. Her mom left at birth. And um, we're wondering if you still have an opening at your house. And I'm like, in my mind, not out loud. I'm like, you've got me on a freaking list. Like I could pick up any kid anytime I thought I was applying for my nephew. So she's like, you can, it's Friday. You can come now. You can come. I'm like, I am on my way. For the first time in my life, I'm standing on the other side of the door where the kids are, where I used to be. And I have a moment with God as she walks out the door, this little 15 year old, that it doesn't make sense. Like, 
like a person like me, like a heroin addict prostitute could be chosen to be a foster mom. But I'm here to tell you, God does not make sense in this life. He makes miracle after miracle after miracle. If you've been here any, any length of time, you know that already, right? So I take her home. She's 15. My daughter's 15. I walk out of my house one day and there's for sale signs everywhere in the neighborhood. And I know my neighbors, we all moved in together. We all planted our lawns together. I'm like, where's everyone going? Cause they know, I don't know anything about it, that kind of stuff. And my neighbor, Brian says, Lori, our homes are appreciated. Like you, you take that money, that extra money and you buy a bigger house. And I'm thinking, you know what? This guy has no idea that my biggest dream was to move into the motel room that didn't just have the hot plate, but had the separate kitchen area. Cause I thought that was rich, right? I thought if you can get in that motel room, you got it made, right? So this thing is beyond my wildest dreams, but I'm taking direction anyway. So I get down on my lawn with the for sale sign that the realtor gave me. And I talked to George and I say, look, I don't know what God's will is, but if it sells within a month, I'll move. And if it doesn't, I stay. Three weeks later, my house sells more than any other house in the neighborhood. I have no idea why. So there's people moving in. So I jump on my motorcycle and I'm riding through the county. I see these really big houses and um, I walk in to see what they look like. And the lady that taught me to buy a house changed jobs and she's working at this place. And when I walk in, she's like, oh my God, Lori, I'm gonna sell your second house. I'm like, seriously, I'm coming to look at the paint. This place is too big for me. And she said, go home and get your taxes. Let's see where you're at right now. So I rush home, I get my taxes, I bring them back. Of course I own the company. So I'm buying a five bedroom house. I have no idea why there's not that many of us, but I realize now that God keeps on growing my house because God wants to give me more children. I could go on for a long time with this, but um, I've got, 43 kids, 12, 14 grandsons, 12 granddaughters, and the most amazing life you could ever imagine. My own daughter went to Columbia School of Social Work after writing her personal story about her 17 sisters at the time. And um, I realize now that when I thought God hated me for something I did in the past life, that he loved me so much that he blessed me for whatever would be in this top life because it's in the times that I go to pick up a kid that's in so much darkness and I know the path out because I walk the path out and I'll tell you guys right now I would walk every day again every day being beat by my dad every day on the streets to be right here right now which is the most beautiful amazing life and I wouldn't trade it for anyone and um Oh, I want to say a couple more things and then I'll shut up. A couple of years ago, well, it's actually maybe 10 years ago, I was on a, a cruise to Mexico with my kids and I was speaking on the cruise. I think it was CA. And when the, the cruise line docked, my cell phone went crazy. At the time I was the director at Northrop Grumman. So I thought it's, it's computer shiz. You know, people need computer, have computer problems all the time. And I picked up my phone to find a message that said, this is St. Helens, Florida hospital. This is social worker, Michael Wood. I've got your father in our custody. There's been a serious incident. You need to call us immediately. Well, the words father and immediate and incident were like triggering for me. But at the same time, like years ago, in my own therapy, I thought maybe my dad never had anyone that loved him. Maybe that's why he was so angry. And I heard what Gandhi said about be the change you want to see in the world. So I decided I would be the change in the hardest person's life. I would take on my dad. So I'd been writing my dad letters for years, telling him the good things about him and telling him I loved him and giving him the kind of love and grace that you guys give me. And I get on the phone with this guy and he says, um, your father tried to kill himself. And all he's saying is he did bad things and he deserves to die. He won't tell us what he did, but he's in bad shape. And he told us a couple of days ago, he has no family, but now he tells us he has one daughter. And that was those letters, I know it was. And he told us to call, call you, but you didn't answer your phone. I explained I was out on the ship. 
but I'm back now. And he said, do you want to talk to your dad and against every part of me that was in fear? I said, yes. And I got on the phone with my dad and he said, how dare you? How dare you love me? How dare you forgive me after what I've done to you? I don't deserve your love. I deserve to die. And I said, dad, don't you realize it's every day of my life that gets me right here, right now. And there's no other way I could have got here without you. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you are my dad. And I love you, dad. And I forgive you. It was a long time ago. You need to forgive yourself. And then he started crying. The man got back on the phone and said, the only way I'm releasing your dad is in your custody. And I had read the story about Joseph in the Bible, even though I'm Jew, I don't read Hebrew, but I was perusing through to see what you guys have on the other side. And I read that story of Joseph and I knew immediately that's what Joseph would have done. That's what Gandhi would have done. That's what Jesus would have done. So I pick up my dad at Long Beach airport and we're loading his suitcase in the car. And he said, you just don't get it, do you? And I'm like, get what dad? And he said, your grandma, Anna, that was my Yiddish grandma in New York. She had already passed away, but she had, she loved me so much. She loved everyone so much, but she was my dad's mom. I could never figure this out. How is she so loving? And he's so angry. And I said, yeah, of course I remember grandma. Anna. And he's like, grandma Anna was my foster mom. I'm like, oh my God. He said, you're saving kids like me. And I don't want to be here anymore after what I did to you. And I just hugged him and I called home and I said, dad's going to be the oldest foster kid in the house tonight. And we're going to love him up until he learns to love himself. And um, the last thing I want to say is I called Tom, the guy in the wheelchair one day. I started to quit my computer job owning the company years ago. And I started a charity. And all we do now is rescue kids on the street, um, girls that are sex trafficked or homeless. So if you know anyone that needs rescuing, that's drug addicted, we give them free detox, free rehab, free college, free housing, free everything. I have 126 beds and all I do is rescue the girls. But I called Tom one day and I said, the man in the wheelchair, and I said, you need to come see my charity house. And he said, Lori, I'm not into kids. And I said, I know, I get it. But if you could just stop by my charity house, he said, I'll meet you at Starbucks. I'm like, no, meet me at the charity house for a minute and then we can go to Starbucks. I finally got him to agree. He rolled up to this house, the very first house we ever built. And by the door, there's this plaque and it says the Fontleroy house and some Shakespearean quote about light after the rain. And his last name is Fontleroy. So he rolls up to the door in his wheelchair and he's like, what is my name doing on this house? And I'm like, Tom, you saved my life. And he's like, Lori, I give you a fucking ride. And I'm like, Tom, when you used to come out and see me on the street when I was prostituting and tell me like, maybe someday I could be something. I never saw it. I never believed it. That peanut of hope you had was enough to bridge me out of hell, Tom. You saved my freaking life. And he looked like he was going to cry. So he popped a wheelie and met me at Starbucks. But I'm here to tell you, if you don't believe in God, know that he believes in you and stay and let him reveal to you how much he loves you. Thank you for letting me share.